Henry Ford and Charlie Steinmetz were very good friends. Steinmetz, though, was a dwarf, and he was actually grossly deformed. Steinmetz also was a genius, especially when it came to the field of electricity. Steinmetz was responsible for building the first great generators for Henry Ford's plant in Dearborn, Michigan. One day, those huge generators broke down, and what you need to know about Henry Ford is he was a cheapskate. And so he gave the job out to the lowest bidder. After a day, they couldn't get those generators running. So not only did Henry Ford not have those generators running, but he lost a day of productivity. So he called his good friend Charlie Steinmetz up, and Steinmetz came, and he kind of puttered around, and he tinkered around for a couple hours on those great generators. And after a couple of hours, he threw the switch, and those generators started up again, and and Henry Ford was in business. Several days later, Henry Ford received a bill from his good friend Charlie Steinmetz, and the bill was for $10,000, a great, great sum in those days. I mean, Henry Ford was actually shocked. So Ford wrote a little note to his good friend Steinmetz, and he said, Hey, Charlie, isn't that a bit high for a few hours of tinkering around on the generators? And a week later, Henry Ford got another bill from his good friend Charlie Steinmetz, a new bill. This time it read, $10 for tinkering around on the generators, $9,990 for knowing where to tinker. (laughs) And Henry Ford paid that bill. You know, when it comes to solving problems, the chief key to that is knowing where to tinker. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians... The Apostle Paul is going to put his finger. He's going to show us where we need to tinker to solve the problem of peace. So I've entitled the message this morning, Is Real Peace Possible? Is real peace possible in your life and in this world? Father, I thank you so much for the worship and the buglers and all that's transpired up to this morning. I thank you for this season. And I really pray that uh, over the next several weeks, we will contemplate the greatest occurrence on planet Earth when God broke into this world and became a baby, changing it forever. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word and we look at Jesus Christ this morning, may we see him new, may we see him afresh, and may we see that he is the only solution peace. So I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. I ask that you would pour out grace upon me and grace upon each and every person here. Give us soft hearts. Give us ears to hear so that we may truly be set free in Jesus Christ. So I thank you for what you're going to do now in the next several minutes. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ephesians and chapter 2, starting at verse 11. If not, then we will just look up on the screen. And Paul writes these words, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've 
been brought near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. If we had lived 3,000 years ago, most of us, Paul said, would have been without hope. You see, before Jesus Christ walked on planet Earth, only the Jews knew the living God. He had actually appeared to the Jewish people. He had cut several covenants with the Jewish people. But most important of all, his manifest presence was literally localized in what we call the Ark of the Covenant. The Shekinah glory literally was radiating from the Ark of the Covenant as God hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. Skip, can you put that up? So you could literally go to Jerusalem, and there you saw the manifestation of the living God, the creator God of the universe. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were lost. Their minds were confused. They were without hope, Paul says. Their lives were absolutely, totally meaningless. And they were terribly afraid of the creation of nature out there. So you know what they did? They created little gods. They created little gods that would help them to control and to help them understand the world around them. For example, let me just give you a couple examples of this. The Philistines, they created the god Dagon. Skip, can you put that up? He was known as, that's a literal god. That's a god that the Philistines created. And he was known as the fish god. Obviously, you can see the back end of him, half man, half fish. And Dagon was supposed to be able to help your crops. He was supposed to protect your crops and give you a wonderful and great harvest. Now, how many really think that that guy there is really going to be able to do that? I don't know. Maybe you do. I, you know, think it's kind of weird, but uh, they, they certainly saw it that way. The Canaanites and the Babylonians, they created a god known as Moloch or Marduk, or Baal, depending on where you live, that was his name. Skip, you can put it up. Now, Moloch, or Marduk, or Baal, he was the super god. He was the god who was over entire nature. He was the god over the pantheon of gods. And you wanted to be in. You wanted to be on the good side of this guy. You wanted to be on the good side of Baal. Because, you see, he would determine whether your life would be prosperous or not prosperous. He who had the power and the ability to protect you from evil. But I want you to know there was a high price to have Marduk or Baal or Moloch on your side. Do you know what that price was? You had to pass your child through the fire. And what that means is, you'll see right there, you see Baal there on that throne, kind of. And what they would do is they would heat his hands. His arms would be red hot. There would be a pan there. And you would have to lay your firstborn, generally a male, and you would lay him on the red hand, hot hands and arms of Baal or Moloch or Marduk. And you would watch your child fry, sizzle, writhe in pain to satiate this God. I mean, what kind of person, what would cause a human being to do something so contrary to your instincts? And I'll give you the answer. The answer is fear. Fear of the elements. Fear of the enemies around you. Think ISIS. Fear of sickness. Fear of death. 
The Gentiles back 3,000 years ago, they grasped at anything. They created these little gods hoping that somehow they could manipulate these gods that they had created and that these gods would somehow give them control over the world and over their destinies. And more than that, it's so horrible to live in fear and satiate the raging fears inside them. How would you like to have been a Gentile three thousand years ago the apostle paul said it as simply as this they had no hope you know the jews on the other hand though paul tells us in the verses that we looked at the jews on the other hand thought that they were kind of special they were chosen they were the chosen people they were set apart i mean god promised them that they were going to have a wonderful future And in fact, you know, the Jewish people, it still carries over in the culture today. You still see how they really view themselves as kind of a special people. I mean, have you ever encountered a Jewish mother? No, really. All of her children are geniuses. And they all have just an absolute wonderful future. For example, there were these two Jewish mothers that met on a street. And one of the Jewish mothers said, you know, why? What wonderful children you have. How old are they? And the other Jewish mother said, well, the lawyer, or the doctor's five, and the lawyer's three. (laughs) But seriously, that's how the Jews saw themselves. Up until the time of Jesus Christ, the Jews saw themselves as very, very special people. And they saw the Gentiles, the goyim, they called them the goyim, they called them dogs. They were superior to the Gentile people in their minds. And the only way I could give you a feel for this is to think back in the South in the 40s and 50s and 60s and how the Southern whites felt about the blacks. Sadly to say, the whites really saw themselves as superior to the blacks. I'm not saying all the whites did, but a lot of the white people really saw themselves as superior to the black race. And sadly, many, many still do see it that way. That's one of the reasons why our country is being ripped apart. Now, what I want you to watch here is what's going to happen now in verse 14. Because what you have is you have such hostility in this world. You not only have hostility between the Jews and the Greeks, but think of our world today. You've got blacks and you've got whites. You've got, you, you, you've got ISIS. You've got radical Islam. You've got Christianity. I mean, you've got rich. You've got poor. You have such divisions occurring in this country today. You've got husband and wife. I mean, there are incredible, incredible divisions and hostility. There's even hostility probably in this room right now. And who can break down those walls? Now watch what Paul says here. Now watch this. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us, 
can come to God the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You're probably not sure what that's all saying. Christmas is coming up, and one of the great Christmas verses, in fact, it was read this morning. I didn't even know it was going to be read. It's found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah. He wrote these incredible words. 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, a son is given to us, The government will rest on his shoulders and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now watch this. And he will be called the Prince of Peace. There is only one person, I'm going to tell you this morning, there is only one person that can bring peace to this world. There is only one person that can bring peace to your relationships that you have. There is only one person that can give you peace on the inside right in here. And that person is Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you're wondering, you know, you're saying, that's fine, you're a preacher, you're expected to say that. But you're asking the question, why is it only Jesus? Why is Jesus the only one on the entire planet that can bring peace to this world? He's the only one that can bring peace to relationships. He's the only one that can give you peace and me peace on the inside. Why is that? And the answer is twofold. Now listen to me. Because this is the most important part of the message. You know, our greatest problem, and it may not be your greatest problem now, but our greatest problem at one time was that we were at war with God. And some of us in this room right now are still at war with God. In fact, it says this in Psalm chapter 2, in verses 1 through 3. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. You know, last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 10. And we saw that, you know, we all come into this world as little savages. That's what a baby is. You know, we don't like that. But every baby comes into this world as a selfish savage. Have you ever noticed that? They're the most self-centered beings in the entire world planet. They want what they want when they want it. You know, and then a child begins to grow up and they begin to have a consciousness of God. And the first thing they notice about God is that God has commands. And they begin to notice that these commands kind of cramp their lifestyle. So you know what they do? They do what it says right there in Ephesians chapter 2. We try to break the fetters. We want to break the chains of God and we're going to become free in the process, right? But actually we find ourselves just getting more and more into bondage. You know, I just want you to understand something this morning. God has never been at war with anyone in this room. We have been at war with God. God has never been at war with anyone in this room. We have been at war with God. We know deep down at one time, and some of us still are, we're in rebellion to God. We went our own way, and so we figure, you know, God must hate me for my rebellion. But you know, that's not true. That's not true. In fact, one of the great Christmas, perhaps the greatest Christmas passage says something different. You know what the greatest Christmas passage is? Anybody know? Awesome. John three sixteen. 
Come on, John 3, 16. For God so loved you, me, every single person that's ever lived, that he literally sent part of himself. We know him as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. That anyone, anyone who believes in him, anyone who places their faith in him, anyone who trusts in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Peace starts when you and you and you and you and you and me have peace in here. And the only way that you'll ever have peace. Now watch this. Is when you receive the Prince of Peace and what he did on the cross. Skip, can you put that picture up? You know, someone says to me, why do you have to show Jesus so bloody? I'll tell you why. Because that's exactly, do you know, realize the cross, what he was doing on the cross? He was creating peace. He, he was creating peace between us and heaven. He's the only one that can give you peace. And you see the tremendous wounds, those wounds And what he was doing there was he was creating peace between man and he was creating peace between us and God. And I'm going to ask you a question this morning. It's only through receiving him and the horrible, horrible price he paid to create that peace that you can have peace in here. And I'm going to ask you right now, do you have peace? Do you really have peace in here? You know, so many of us do not have peace in our relationship. I'm going to tell you something. You can go to all the counseling you want, and I'm not against counseling. But the problem most people have is they don't have peace in here. You show me a husband and wife who have peace in here, and I'll show you a home that has peace. The fundamental problem that we have on planet Earth is most people simply do not have peace in here. And if you don't have peace in here, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to create all kinds of conflict wherever you go. You're like a walking time bomb. You're a walking terrorist, really, emotionally and psychologically. Secondly, the reason why Jesus Christ is so important when it comes to bringing peace is only he can break down the walls of hostility between two warring parties. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Many years ago, there was this bus driver in Australia. His name was John Reed, and he drove a bus full of high school white boys and aborigines. And one time he had finally just had enough. These guys were always squawking. They were fighting between one another. It was kind of a microcosm of the world. So one day he pulls his bus off to the side, the side of the road. He stops it. He gets up and he says to the white boys, what color are you? And in unison they said, we're white. He said, no, you're not. You're green. And if you want to ride on my bus, then you're green. And then he said, now what color are you to the white boys? And they all said in unison, we're green. Then he said to the aborigines, what color are you? And they said, well, we're black. He said, no, you're not. You're green. If you want to ride on my bus, you need to be green. So then he asked the aborigines again, what color are you? And in unison, they said, we're green. And then, you know, he sat down and he began driving the bus. And it looked like the whole thing was resolved. But several miles down the road, one of the white boys said, okay, light green on this side of the bus and dark green on this side of the bus. You know, no matter how hard we try, we can't break down the walls of hostility. We can't do it in our flesh. It's not possible. But Paul says something very important. Skip, can you put it up again in verses 14 and 15? Oh, 
Well, he says something extremely important in verses 14 and 15. He says that only, only Jesus Christ can break down the walls of hostility. Only he has the ability to do that. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this. Switch it back to Galatians now that you got me there, Skip. He wrote these words. For you are all children. Now watch this. For you are all children of God. This is why Jesus can break down the body and walls. Watch this. Through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on the character of Christ. Like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Watch this. Slave or free. Male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Did you see that? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want you to know this morning that only Jesus Christ can tear down the walls between blacks and whites. Only Jesus Christ can break down the walls between Jews and Muslims. Only Jesus Christ can break down the walls between rich and poor. Only Jesus Christ can break down the walls between blue collar and white collar. Only Jesus Christ can break down the walls between kings. And the common people, only Jesus Christ can break down the walls between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between managers and employees. Jesus Christ is the only one who can tear down the walls between two hostile parties or people. And you say, why is Jesus Christ the only one who can do that? Skip, can you put this picture back up again? Imagine with me 2,000 years ago, you are standing at the cross of Christ. If you are standing at the cross of Christ, when you are standing there at the cross, it matters not whether you are black, it matters not whether you are white. It matters not whether you are rich. It not matters whether you are poor. It does not matter whether you are a Jew or that you are a Muslim or that you are Shinto or that you are Buddhist. There at the cross of Christ, it does not matter if you are the president of the United States and you, on the other hand, are a a, a blue-collar worker. At the cross of Christ, as you see the stream of humanity there at the cross of Christ, the only thing there at the cross of Christ are sinners who are saved by grace and who are now children of God. Does everybody see that? When you stand, you you just line them up. It does not matter if you're the president of a corporation or you're a janitor. It doesn't matter what your color is. I don't care whether you're black or you're white or you're pink or you're blue. When you stand there, every single person, if you stand there, is a sinner. And we're saved by grace. And now we're children of God. Do you realize at the cross of Christ, there's no room for pride? Now, this is why so many people find it difficult to come to Jesus Christ. Because there's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for demandingness. There's no room for unforgiveness. There is no room for condemnation. The only thing that you have room for at the cross of Christ is someone who is contrite and admits that they're a sinner and in desperate need of the grace 
of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. Do you see? He levels the playing field. Do you understand that? He levels the playing field. There's no greatness at the cross. The only one's great is, is Jesus Christ. Now see, you say, well, how do I know if I'm truly at the cross of Christ? See, this is the real issue. You know, if you're really at the cross of Christ, if you've really grabbed it, that you're really just a sinner saved by grace, there's three things that are going to be true of your life. This is the challenge. If you really have come to the point and you finally get it, I'm nothing. By the way, you are nothing. I I, I mean, it's hard for us to figure that out. I I think I told you many years ago when I was in seminary or cemetery, uh, you know, Howard Hendricks was a, interesting professor I had, and he uh, said, gentlemen, so many of you pray, I, I listen to you pray, and you pray, Lord, make me nothing. He says, newsflash, you are nothing. The good news is, is that God can make a marble statue out of a mud pie or mud, which you are. And see, when you really grab that, when you grab that you're nothing and that you are merely a sinner saved by grace and a child of God, which is something. Three things will be true of your life. You'll be seeking truth. You'll be seeking truth. The second thing that will be true of your life, you'll be living in grace. Because see, when you're at the cross and you've humbled yourself and you've come to the point where you just recognize that you're nothing, that you're really just a sinner, now you're ready to receive his grace. And it's a great place to live when you're receiving his grace. It's the only way you can receive his grace, by the way. And as you're receiving his grace, the third thing will be true of your life. You'll be pouring out love. If you're standing literally at the cross of Christ and you really get Ephesians with the passage that we just looked at here, then you recognize that you're nothing, but you've become something because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And now you're a child of God. And the three things that are true of your life is you're pursuing truth, living, reveling in grace and pouring out love. You think that can bring peace? Imagine if everyone was doing that. Imagine if everyone in your household was doing that. I'd put the counselors out of business, right? They'd be happy about that. I'm telling you, the vast majority of our problems is because we don't have peace in here. I'm challenging you this morning, if you don't have peace, come to Christ. Do yourself a favor and do everyone around you a favor. Because it's a beautiful person when they've come to the point where they've humbled themselves and they're just living in the grace of Christ because then they're able to give love. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who hasn't come to the point where they've genuinely received Christ, I pray now, Holy Spirit, you would make that so real to them. You can bring down, there's such hope this morning, you can bring down the walls of hostility within ourselves. So many of us hate ourselves. We're so angry at ourselves. We see our mistakes and we see our failures. And and you say, that's okay, come. Come to the cross and I'll cover them with my blood. And because we're so angry on the inside, it comes out against our mates and against our children and it spreads into our places of work and then it spreads 
into our towns and our cities and our states and our countries and country against country from there. May it stop this morning, Lord. May it stop at least in this body here. May we all come to the cross where the playing field is level and we're just sinners saved by his grace. I pray that each and every person, even now, is able to revel in your grace and as a result, pour out your love. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen.